We are looking tonight at Article 27 of the Belgic Confession, and that article has the title, The Catholic Christian Church. We believe and profess one Catholic or universal church, which is a holy congregation of true Christian believers, all expecting their salvation in Jesus Christ, being washed by his blood, sanctified and sealed by the Holy Spirit. This church has been from the beginning of the world and will be to the end thereof, which is evident from this, that Christ is an eternal king, which, without subjects, he cannot be. And this holy church is preserved or supported by God against the rage of the whole world, though it sometimes, for a while, appears very small, and in the eyes of men to be reduced to nothing. As during the perilous reign of Ahab, the Lord reserved unto him seven thousand men, who had not bowed their knees to Baal. Furthermore, this holy church is not confined, bound, or limited to a certain place or to certain persons, but is spread and dispersed over the whole world, and yet is joined and united with heart and will by the power of faith in one and the same Spirit. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, we begin here in the Belgic Confession, a study of the doctrine of the Church. And this study of the doctrine of the Church will take us nearly to the end of the Confession, through Article 35. The Confession here in this first article on the Church defines the Church as the congregation of true Christian believers and describes some of the attributes of the Church as her Catholicity, her holiness, her unity, and her existence from the beginning to the end of the world. We should notice as we look at this description of the Church in this article that the Confession speaks primarily of the Church as she should be, and as God is making her to be, rather than as she is. We see that perhaps especially in the first couple of lines of the article, which tell us that this church is a congregation of true Christian believers. We know that the church on earth is uh, composed of both believers and unbelievers, that there are in the church hypocrites, those who are not really, truly members of the Lord Jesus Christ. The tares are mixed in with the wheat and will be mixed in with the wheat until our Lord comes again. So the uh, church is defined here as she will be when God has finished working with her and uh, the uh, church is becoming what God wants her to be through the work of God in her now and in the time to come as well, through the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments and the exercise of discipline especially. There are uh, two parts, I think, to this article of the Confession. The first is the definition of the church, and we'll talk briefly about that, and then we'll spend the rest of our time talking primarily about her characteristics. 
Before we get, however, to the uh, Confession's definition of the Church as the congregation of true Christian believers, I would like to take a few minutes just to talk about the biblical words for the Church. The Old Testament has particularly two words for the Church, and those words are found both found in Exodus chapter 12, verse 6. Exodus 12, verse 6, where God is giving to Moses the instructions for the celebration of the Passover. And he tells Moses this, Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. See the two words, assembly and congregation. Now these two words are very hard to distinguish in the uh, Old Testament. They are such close synonyms that it's very difficult, in fact, to discern a difference between them. Uh, but the, the, word, the idea that's conveyed by these two words is that, first of all, the church is a gathering, an assembly, or a congregation, and that this gathering, or assembly, or congregation has a purpose, that it acts concertedly, and that its purpose is especially, of course, the worship of God and the doing of His work in the world. So that's the, those are the Old Testament terms. And the New Testament has really just one word for the church, the word ecclesia, from which we get our word ecclesiastical. And that word means called out. That word then refers to the church as that body of people whom God has called out of the world, whom God has separated from the world to be a people for himself. And the New Testament uses that word ecclesia in two ways. It refers in some instances, to a congregation in a particular place. And so you may speak of the church in Ephesus or the church in Jerusalem or in some other particular geographical location. Or it uses that word in the universal sense, all believers all over the world. In fact, sometimes all believers all over the world, whether in heaven or on earth, and whatever time in the history of the world they may have lived or even shall live. And it's in this latter sense, then, the church universal, that the uh, confession is talking here in this article. It's not talking, of course, about a particular congregation, though particular congregations do partake of all these characteristics of the church and may be described as congregations of true Christian believers, but the confession is talking about the church as all the people of God in the world at any time, or all the people of God from the beginning to the end of the world, whether in heaven or on earth. Now there's one other thing that we have to pay attention to in this connection also, and that is that the uh, confession talks about these true Christian believers as having 
these characteristics. They have been washed in the blood of Christ. They expect their salvation in him. And they are sanctified and sealed by the Holy Spirit. I think we understand what all those things mean. Washing in the blood of Christ, expecting salvation from him, and having our hope fixed upon him and his promises. Sanctified by him, perhaps the only one that we uh, may be somewhat unfamiliar with, or some of us may be unfamiliar with, is the idea of sealing. They are those who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And that sealing refers to the Spirit's work of preserving all those whom God has called out of the world by the power of His Word. You can see that meaning of the word sealing in Revelation chapter 7, verse 3. In the first two chapters of that, um, in the first two verses of that chapter, we read about the four angels who stand at the four corners of the earth holding the four winds of the earth that they should not blow on the earth, on the sea or on any tree. And these angels are called by God to continue to hold those winds then until the servants of God have been sealed on their foreheads. That is, until they have been protected by the sealing of the Holy Spirit from these winds which are about to blow on the earth. And I think those winds represent the judgments of God that are coming on the earth and that are described throughout the book of Revelation. And of course, we may say, uh, should say here at this point, that Christ is the king and the head of the church as well. We'll be coming back to that when we talk about the government of the church in a later article. So that's, that's basically what the confession has to say about the church. It is the congregation of true Christian believers. Let's turn our attention then to the various characteristics which the confession mentions here in the article. The first of those characteristics is that she is Catholic or universal. And the confession defines this or describes the idea of this Catholicity or universality in the first sentence of the last paragraph of the article. This holy church is not confined, bound, or limited to a certain place or to certain persons, but is spread and dispersed over the whole world. That's the Catholicity or universality of the church. She's not confined, bound, or limited to a certain place or to certain persons. That is, she's not confined or bound to a specific geographical Location on the earth, such as, for example, the nation of Israel. And she's not confined or bound to certain persons, that is, to a, uh, persons of a particular class or of a particular race or of a particular nation. She is, in fact, gathered by God from every nation, tribe, and tongue under heaven. God has his elect all throughout the world and through all the nations of the world. She is from every race and color of men. 
She is from every social status, rich and poor, high and low, master and slave, male and female, children and adults. God is not a respecter of persons in any sense in the gathering of his church. The scriptures talk about this Catholicity of the church in Genesis 12, verse 3. There God was talking to Abraham and giving to Abraham his promises. And he said to Abraham there, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And he is referring, of course, to the distant future when the Gentiles will be called as well as the Jews. But I think that what's particularly interesting about that verse is that he refers not to nations, as we usually do when we talk about the Catholicity of the church, but to families. This is a a word which we might also translate it as clans. He could have talked about nations. uh, In connection with the history of Abraham, we read about how the Amorites and the Hivites and so on were in the land at that time. There were nations that he could have talked about, but he goes down to a smaller grouping of people, to the clans of the earth, as if to emphasize how diverse this people is going to be. It's not going to be just from all the nations, but even from all the clans or all the families of the earth. So God is there prophesying to Abraham preaching the gospel to Abraham, as Galatians says, of the Catholicity of the church. And John the Apostle sees this prophecy of the Lord fulfilled in the final uh, glorification of the church in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Notice the four words that the Apostle John uses there. First, the word nations, and that word is pretty much equivalent to the word that, as we use it today, you could talk in John's time of the nation of the Romans, for example, or the nation of the Greeks, or the nation of the Jews, just as we might talk about the nation of China, or the nation of South Africa, or whatever it might be. This gathering, then, of the elect is from all these different nations, In the second place, John uses the word tribes here. This word is often used of the tribes of the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes, but not always, and I don't think it has reference to the 12 tribes of Israel here, but it's similar in uh, meaning to that word we just looked at in uh, Genesis chapter 12, the clans or the families. It's a smaller grouping of peoples then which may sometimes, to some measure, cross the boundaries of nations. And then John uses the word peoples 
And this is sometimes in the scriptures a, a synonym for nations, but I think maybe here it's used more in the way that uh, Luke chapter 2 verse 10 uses it. Luke chapter 2 verse 10, when the angels were speaking to the shepherds about the birth of Christ, and they said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. It doesn't really classify people into nations then. I think that's the idea. It's just many different peoples, whatever those peoples are uh, on the face of the earth that he is talking about. So you see that Catholicity of the church described, first of all, with regard to these uh, different groupings of men on the earth. And then John uses also the word tongues or languages. And these people then are also from all the different languages of the world. And the gospel, as it is preached, is preached in all these different languages and calls all these people in all their different languages to come to the kingdom of the Lamb. And this is the whole point, of course, of the Apostle Peter's uh, interpretation of the speaking in tongues on the day of Pentecost. That this indicated that all these different peoples of all these different places and nations of the earth were to become part of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. So these, this is the Catholicity of the church. It's part, when we talk about the Catholicity of the church, we're talking about part of her diversity, not all of her diversity. We'll get to another aspect of her diversity a little bit later. She is from all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. The second characteristic, which the confession mentions is the church's holiness. And this is mentioned really only in one word, the first line of the last paragraph. First, furthermore, this holy church is not confined, bound, or limited to a certain place or to certain persons. Now you've heard it said that the primary meaning of holiness is separateness or otherness. You've heard it said that the holiness of God means that he is wholly other, he is wholly different from all his creatures and from us and even from the holy angels. But I do not believe that is the main meaning of the word holiness in the scriptures. Rather, the word holiness in the scriptures refers to moral purity. It refer, teaches us when it's applied to God that he is the light in whom is no darkness at all, that there is no shadow or stain of sin in his being, that he is in his holiness, and that's the secondary meaning, that he is in his holiness separate from the rest of his creatures that he is even in his holiness separate from the holy angels, that his holiness is so much greater than the uh, holiness even of the holy angels that uh, men cannot endure to look upon that holiness 
of God, that light which no man can approach. And this holiness, then, of God is something that he communicates by the Holy Spirit to his church. He makes her holy. He sanctifies her by the blood of Christ. He cleanses her from her sins. He washes her from her filthiness. He makes her morally clean. And it is then through this moral cleansing that she becomes separate from the world. It is her holiness, her holiness in confessing the truth and in walking according to the truth that separates her from the world. And that makes it altogether inappropriate for the people of God to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. This holiness is described, for example, in Revelation 7 again, verses 13 and 14. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes? And where did they come from? Who is this great multitude that you see before the throne from every nation, tribe, and tongue? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The church is holy because she has been conformed to the image of God and of Christ, his only begotten Son. So that's the second characteristic. The third characteristic which the confession mentions is that this church has been from the beginning of the world and will be to the end thereof. We should notice, of course, that the confession makes no distinction between Old and New Testament when it's defining the church and describing the church in this way. It says the church has existed from the beginning of the world. It existed in the Old Testament. Stephen and Acts 7, verse 38, spoke of the church in the wilderness. And this church then carries right on into the New Testament, and God adds to this Old Testament church the Gentiles. They become a part of the house of David, a part of the family of Abraham. But what the confession is emphasizing here is that there has never been a time in the history of the world from the beginning that this church has not existed. It has always existed in the world. And the, church, and the confession doesn't mean that it has existed in the, in the abstract sense that there is a spiritual body of Christ that exists and to which God is daily adding members. But it means that this church has a real, physical, institutional existence here on earth. That what we call churches, if they are true churches, are a part of this church which it is talking about, which the confession is talking about. And the confession defends this idea of the existence of the church, the continuous existence of the church, by saying, 
Christ is an eternal king. And Christ could not be an eternal king if he did not at some point in the history of the world have subjects. If at some point he were without subjects, I should say. He has his subjects, his citizens of his kingdom in the world at all times in the history of the world. And that is because God preserves this church and supports her against the rage of the whole world. Sometimes the church appears very small, as in the days of Elijah, when there were only 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. Sometimes she grows apostate, very apostate, as she had, for example, before the time of the Reformation. And as we may uh, think also of the church in our own day, But God never permits the gates of hell to prevail against her. God always preserves to himself a remnant according to the election of grace, at least a remnant according to the election of grace. This church always exists in the world throughout the whole history of the world. So that's the third characteristic. She has been from the beginning and will be to the end. She exists continually. And the fourth characteristic is her unity. And this you find in the last paragraph. Yet is joined and united with heart and will by the power of faith in one and the same spirit. Uh, Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4 to look at this subject of the unity of the church. The Apostle Paul in just two verses there gives us a very rich uh, description of the unity of the church. Verses 4 and 5 of Ephesians 4. He says there, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. If you look through that list and think about that list a bit, you see, first of all, that she is one body. That's a description of the church as the body of Christ. She is one because she is the body of Christ. We read 1 Corinthians 12 a little while ago, and Paul says she is one body with many members. That's what this one body is all about. These members are united as members of the body of Christ. She is, her unity is in one spirit. For it is the spirit who dwells in the church and who dwells in each of the true members of the church to bring them together. It is a unity of hope. She has one hope, the hope of the inheritance of glory. 
It is a unity under one Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the king and head of the church, the only king and head of the church. It is not only a unity of hope, but it is a unity of faith. She confesses the same truth. It is a unity through, by means of, one baptism, the washing of regeneration. And it is also a unity in not only one Lord, but in one God and Father of all. It's a unity, then, that can be looked at from all these different perspectives, and it's a unity of service to the one God and Father of all, and a unity of love for that one God and Father of all, and all those who belong to him. But it's also a unity in diversity. Again, we refer to uh, 1 Corinthians 12. We've already seen that diversity in connection with her Catholicity, that she's from every nation, tribe, and family, and tongue on the earth. But there's a other, another aspect to her diversity in the, each of the members. Each of the members has different gifts. As 1 Corinthians 12 teaches us, and as Paul also says in Romans chapter 12, a diversity of gifts in these members. In Romans chapter 12, uh, Paul says this, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So there's this diversity of gifts as well as diversity of of people within the church. But these are all, in their diversity, made one in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now another thing about that unity of the church, it's not simply a static unity. We may speak of the unity, for example, of a building a static unity, but it's one building composed of many different parts. And that building has one purpose, whatever purpose it was created for. The scriptures use this figure of speech, that the church is a building, when it speaks of the church as the house or the dwelling or the temple of God. And the scriptures use that in order exactly to teach us that God dwells in his church. That it's not just a, a gathering of people, but that it is actually the habitation of the Lord on earth. That it is in his church that he makes his home among men. 
He dwells in the hearts of each of the true members of that church, and he dwells in the church as a whole, as the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when the scriptures use that figure, they do not confine themselves to that figure. There are other kinds of unity of which we may speak. We may speak, for example, of a mechanical unity. I don't think that the scriptures use this kind of figure, but there's a mechanical unity that's not static. You may speak of a a complex machine, such as a car or maybe a furnace or something of that sort. You have something that's made up of many different parts, but all these parts are made to work together to perform a certain function. These parts are moving parts. That's a, a mechanical unity. The uh, church's unity exceeds also that mechanical kind of unity. The church's unity is a living or organic unity. It's a unity like that of a tree or a vine or a body, a human body. And this unity is a unity which exists because the same life flows in all the individual parts. And the church is one in this sense because the life of Christ flows in her. Because all the members are so joined to the vine or to the body that the blood of the body flows in each one of the members. And these members then fulfill their one purpose of serving God and doing his work in the world by means of that one life which they all have together. In fact, no member of that church can exist without the connection to the body. Just as a hand dies, if it's cut off from the body, so a member of the church dies if cut off from the body of Christ. So those are the four characteristics that the confession mentions. Her Catholicity, her holiness, her, con- her continuity, and her um, unity. And when we look at the church today, we may well be inclined to say, I don't see much of that. In fact, especially when we consider how the church how the scriptures describe the church at times. You may be inclined to say, I don't even know if that church really exists. I'm thinking here of Psalm 48. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God in his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. On the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. And then again at the end of that psalm, walk about Zion and go all around her, count her towers, mark well her bulwarks, consider her palaces, that you may tell it to the generation following. For this is God, our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to death. 
The church is described as very glorious. Hebrews 12 is another place that we find this glory in the church. You come to the company of the angels and to the church of the firstborn and, and so on. She's described in very glorious and beautiful terms. And we look around us and we say, well, where is that glory? We have all these different denominations. The church is broken up into fragments, small fragments. We have all these different confessions and all these different teachings and all this varying and conflicting and hostile to each other theologies. We see in the church all kinds of sin. We see sometimes in that which calls itself church even outright and purposeful conformity to the purposes and ways of the world. It is as if the church wants to be like the world rather than holy and apart from the world. We see exclusiveness in the church instead of that desire for Catholicity. All this is shame and sorrow to the true people of God. That the church is so far from being what God wants her to be. We have to recognize it. And yet, at the same time, we have to recognize that what the scriptures say of the church is true even now, though true only in a small way. And God has given to us the task of working in her towards her perfection. It's what God himself is doing in the history of the world. He's laboring with this very imperfect and incomplete and fragmented church to make that one great and glorious body of Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, it's our business to be co-workers with God. To be planting and watering as much as we are able, each in his own capacity and using his own gifts. It's with the church as it is with the individual, isn't it? We confess that we are saints. And yet there is much of sin that remains in us. We have only a beginning of that new obedience. A beginning of holiness. And we sometimes despair of ourselves. We often don't show much evidence of our Christianity. And yet we confess together that God is perfecting us and that he will finish his work. The same is true of the church. She is far from perfect. And yet God is working to make her what he wants her to be, to bring her to the glory that he has promised her. And he will finish that work. He will hear the prayer of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in John chapter 17, verses 20 and following. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them. Notice he doesn't say I will give them. I have given them, 
that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundations of the world. This is what God is, the prayer that God is answering as he works now through the preaching of the gospel. And this is the work in which we are called to join him, laboring for the unity, the Catholicity, and holiness of God's church, so that she may be made perfect in one. May God bless us with his words.